This morning we're going to be in John chapter 11. You're welcome to turn there. Uh, very similar to the story we had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this specific story is 40 some odd verses long. It's a very long passage to read. So what we're going to do is we're in just a moment are going to read the first few verses. When I say few, that's probably a little bit of an understatement. The first 16 verses. So John chapter um, uh, 11 is uh, where we'll be. When we get to that passage, I want to make sure I've brought this up correctly. Um, yeah, John chapter 11. Uh, I, I want us to read this together, but no that we'll be referencing the rest of the story. So if you have your Bible in front of you, just leave it open because you'll be referencing, kind of looking back and forth as we go through the story. Uh, it's also one that it is a, is a difficult task to look at the story of Lazarus, as we will, and say, you know, what will, we, what will we spend time on this morning? Because there are so many things that are going on. This is not something that is just a, a very simple story that you just passively go by. I mean, as you read, at least even in the first 16 verses here, there are so many things that Jesus is doing and the people who are listening are left with questions and they're having to learn as they go through. And, and one of the temptations that we have is to look back at these individuals uh, kind of as a, a Monday morning quarterback. Are you familiar with that phrase? You know what a Monday morning quarterback does? Uh, it, it may be a, a fan who on Monday after the weekend ball game sits around talking about what they should have done. You know, uh, you probably have those people in your life as well. They're, they're not very good for you, by the way. Uh, you know, when you're in a, in, a, in a segment having to make decisions, it's a very different perspective than when you can remove yourself and look back. You may have made different decisions. And so this morning, let's look at these individuals as they are going through the story more so than maybe we do as a Monday morning quarterback. All right. Uh, John chapter 11, if you would stand for the reading of the word this morning, uh, it'll be on the screen in front of you and you're welcome to follow along there. But again, leave those open if you have that uh, opportunity there in front of you. John chapter 11, beginning in verse one. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you are going back Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, or they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant a natural sleep. So then, they, then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. God, we come before you this morning, even in the first 16 verses of this story, we find ourselves swimming in emotion, in imagery, in things that are taking place. And so if you would help us this morning as we look through this, God, to be able to maybe separate out a few, a few places to discuss, a few places to ponder. God, maybe we would know you better after doing so and be better prepared to serve you as we go back into this next week. God, we love you. We thank you. And your son's 
name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's an old phrase as well this morning. You'll hear several of them. I've already used the Monday morning quarterback. There's another phrase that we'll use this morning that is similar uh, or very applicable to this passage anyway. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant? When I started thinking about preparation for this sermon this morning, there were so many things that were jumping out at me. And my fear this morning is that, you know, if we go through every single part of this, A, it probably would take us longer to do it justice. But secondary to that, sometimes you can begin to be swimming in things. You know what I mean? So this morning, what I'd like to do is we'll pick out several of these kind of parts of this story. We'll talk about them for a little bit, but understand so that your brain is already in the right space. We will be jumping from different portions of this, imagining what these uh, ladies are going through, imagining what these individuals are going through, what Jesus himself is going through. And so just go ahead and prepare your mind that there will be multiple segments of this. It works better for us if we see this as kind of multiple stories happening within a sermon this morning. Now, one of the things that I want to jump out at, because I think it's necessary for us to kind of revisit some where we've been recently, is in verse 4, Jesus says to these people, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified through it. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, the story that we read about? I'll give you a hint or a reminder. It's the one where the gentleman was born blind. Remember that story? And we talked about when Jesus referenced him, or better yet, when the disciples pointed to him in the distance and were using him as their way of asking questions. He was just kind of an innocent bystander in the story at this point. They're wanting to ask questions about the nature of why he is afflicted with this. If you remember correctly, they're asking questions about who sinned. Did he or did his father sin? Those sorts of things are what they're, what they're working through. And as they work through that, Jesus says something to them about how this man is dealing with this so that glory may be given to God. And one of the more difficult things that we have to deal with sometimes is, you know, there are those things that we go through that gives God opportunity to be able to share with us. I, 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 not share with us, but to, to grow, to teach, to, to mold and to shape us. I don't want to go back and re-preach that sermon, but I want to go back and say like it's necessary for us this morning to recognize again in very close proximity chronologically Jesus is dealing with this, this structure where people are struggling through things and it gives God the opportunity to show himself in a different way. I know this morning that many of you have endured all sorts of things. was talking on the uh, front steps this morning about the nature of enduring things, but sometimes when you endure those things, it's easy for us to get kind of caught in the trap, maybe get angry about those things or, or question why and and find ourselves kind of spiraling, asking like, why is this going on? And in the swimming part of of chaotic situations, to be reminded that it is through chaotic situations that God is best able to reveal himself. It is in the chaotic situations that, that we're the least in control. Have you ever found that place of peace where you start realizing when I'm the most out of control, it gives God the most opportunity to do something really cool? It's a weird thing to say, like, you in control is your worst enemy. You out of control and unable un- to fix, to just step in and, and fix something in many ways is more advantageous. It's more advantageous because God's able to speak into your life in a, in a much better way, in a much easier way. There was a gentleman here. I need to look back in my notes and make sure that I give him. Here it is. Sir John Reith uh, is a gentleman who was quoted as saying, I do not like crises, but I like the opportunity which they supply. I can't tell you this morning that the man who was born blind, I can't tell you this morning that these who were dealing with the death of their friend would have, I know this is a, a loose analogy, but I don't know they would have paid the price of admission in choosing to walk through these things. I don't know that this would have been something that they, it's not like we cause problems in our life and cause chaos so that God will reveal things to us. It's more than 
that when we find ourselves living in a fallen world where chaos is taking place and we're unable to solve, to repair, to fix, to handle on our own, it does provide us opportunities in trusting God that an easy life and no troubles will never afford you. So even in this morning, if you find yourself in one of these places very similar to where these are, where they're asking questions, where they're in a place where they're worried about their friend, I mean, through the progression of this, this is not just one little segment of time. This is them watching their friend go downhill. They know he is not well, and then they see death, and then they have to live in a place of mourning, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And in the midst of all of those things, Jesus is pointing back and saying it is sometimes through those chaotic and those painful situations that God may be glorified. So maybe even this morning as we look at a few of these aspects of the story, maybe one of the first things that we ask is, if you find yourself right now or preparing yourself for chaos later, you find yourself in a place of chaos, where might God be trying to reveal himself to you in the midst of this? Where might God be trying to, to grow you? Because my guess is this morning I sit in a sanctuary or I stand as you sit in a sanctuary full of people who look back and in the midst of their chaos look back and see where God was guiding and directing. It is the good side of being a, a Monday morning quarterback, amen? It's the, it's the ability to look back and make proper assessment that this is where God was guiding me. What a beautiful truth to the story. Another part of the story that kind of jumps out. You ever notice when Jesus finds out how Lazarus is doing that things are not well? Have you ever noticed how long, I mean, look back at this story. How long does he wait around before they even start moving back to Judea? How many of you are procrastinators? How many of you live with a procrastinator? Yeah, so either way, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you got those people that like, and I don't know if they just like enjoy the, um, the, the fast pace of having to get it all done in a very short amount of time. I'm not sure you know, what all the psychology is there. I have things I procrastinate about, as a matter of fact. I was uh, receiving an email yesterday. Uh, it is the time of the year for the pastoral reports, and apparently mine is not completed, so I'm getting the emails like, you need to get these done. And sometimes we push those things off because we may just be dreading them. We may not want to deal with them. I don't know this morning that Jesus is pushing these things off because he doesn't want to deal with them. It seems more clearly that Jesus knows a good bit of the future of what's coming and how this is working together and those sorts of things. But it's not necessarily Jesus' perspective that causes us the most drama and the most torment in our lives. Have you ever made Jesus aware of something that's going wrong and he seems to procrastinate and drag his feet a bit? You ever made Jesus aware that like, I need you to fix this. And then you look around and you're like, Jesus, why are you not fixing this? And proverbially speaking, you look around and it seems very much like, Jesus is dragging his feet. It's not that he's not going to respond, but you're left in this horrible place of saying like, I've made my needs known. I have trusted Jesus. Like, I know you're the one who can handle this. You can heal him. I need you to get here. What are you doing? And you're left in that place of asking the questions, how much longer will I have to wait before Jesus decides to start moving? How much longer will I be in that position? Because in this story, we get again this beauty of looking back as a Monday morning quarterback. And we look at this story and we're like, hey, it's no big deal because we know what happens, right? I mean, what ultimately happens to Lazarus in this? You can say it out loud. Yeah, he's going to be okay, all right? He's going to survive, not survive, I guess technically he does, he does die, and then he, but he's going to be brought back. Like, they will be made joyful again. But let me tell you, the Monday morning quarterback in you that gets to look back at this story and say, like, isn't it awesome that, like, they're going to have a time of joy coming up, that does not matter one ounce in the two days of waiting. You understand? When you're in the two days of waiting, you don't even know 
that it's two days. Are you picturing the fullness of the waiting? Like, you don't know that it's two days. You don't know if it's forever. You don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. You don't know if it's going to be in next year. Like when you're in the place of waiting, what a tormented place to be in because you have made God know. Uh, you have made Him aware. Or better yet, you recognize He's already aware, but you've already called out to Him for help. You've trusted Him. And you said, I need you to handle this. And yet it seems like He's simply dragging His feet. Maybe this morning you find yourself in a position where you have been calling out to God to solve something. Maybe you've been calling out to God to fix something. This one hits closer to home for me today. And I need you to know because I'm, I'm not willing to talk online or on radio. Calling out to God and asking Him to fix something is a, is a difficult place to be in when you're needing Him to fix it, especially when you're calling out for your loved one. I need you to fix it. And I don't know that my loved one has two days. I don't know that my loved one has the time for you to drag your feet. And so maybe this morning join with me in the benefit somewhat of knowing the rest of the story and being able to say, even though there was time of torment, at least in their story, in this one that brings me a sense of, of hope for what may lay ahead in the future, I will continue to trust God even though He has not yet answered my prayer and I find it as if He is dragging His feet to get there. If you find yourself this morning wondering how long it will take before God answers your prayer, maybe this morning's story is one that encourages you to tarry for at least a couple more days. Amen? We'll continue to trust and continue to call upon our God and say, we know that you can fix this and we are asking you to do so. One of the other portions of this story <clears throat> that jump out at me. I told you this was going to be segments, so we're going to be kind of talking about the different compartments of this sermon and of this story. One of those other compartments that we look at is this weird verbiage. Jesus so many times gives them answers that doesn't exactly make sense in their, in their immediate moments. Uh, talking about how God will be glorified. I mean, it, it doesn't exactly make sense when you're there. Or in this other question, when they're asking questions about like, you know, what are we doing and where are we going and, and, you know, what's going on? And Jesus gives them this weird answer in verse 9. He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for by this world's light or for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. I don't think I have this weird relationship with evil. Let me start that way. I have a weird relationship in how I think about evil. I'm very intrigued by a movie that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, I believe. Had someone put it on my radar. Um, not something I dabble in or am around very often. The movie um, premise and plot is one that, like I say, it just fascinates me. I believe it's a movie called, and I'm, I'm struggling with the actual name of the movie, something to the extent of The Pope's Exorcist. We didn't know until 30, 40 years ago that the Vatican had an assigned position for exorcism, which is a whole other conversation. So please do this with me. Wrangle your mind back in and don't go down the road of exorcism this morning. We'll talk about that later, okay? Put that one back on the shelf for a minute, all right? But the, the, the storyline that's intriguing to me is this individual who was tasked by the Catholic Church with exorcisms, dealing with demonic activity, those sorts of things. And, and there's this moment in the previews anyway that like is probably what roped me in because I want to watch this movie to see how they play this part of, the, of their story, yet it is based on a, a true person and a true um, uh, factual events, you know, loosely based as we know Hollywood oftentimes does. And evil says to this servant of the church about what it's going to do, essentially making its threats. And it starts expressing and, and doing some of the things, showing its power. And the person who is representing the behalf or on behalf of the church looks back at the personification of evil and he makes this very, I think, very appropriate statement. You will only do that which God allows you. Think for a moment about the nature of evil. You will only do that which God allows you. You, you will not do more, you know? And, and I think it's necessary for us sometimes when we think about the nature of evil at work in this world. And I know when I told you all, like, this is a, there's a lot of like cans of worms that are taking place here that like require time for us to unpack more fully. We can deal with it 
a later date again. That's another one to put on the shelf. Maybe on a Wednesday night, we get better into the discussion of what of God allowing these things to take place. But ultimately, when we see evil sometimes, we need to see evil. I, I struggle with this. That's where I was getting back to that evil is, evil is ultimately at the disposal of good. Even though sometimes we see evil in a way that, that makes it intimidating for us and we're worried about what evil may do. But let me remind you, as we look back at the Bible and even in our own lives, we see the places where evil is so easily or better yet has the opportunities to get a hold and, and, and to permeate our lives. And one of the places that it does that, I love this, this kind of analogy, is walking in light or walking in darkness. I've looked at this light and darkness from multiple perspectives, but for this morning's purposes, as we look back at the story, think about this place that these individuals are in as they're navigating through this Lazarus story. They're in a place where they have called out to God. He is dragging his feet. They've called out to Jesus in this. He's dragging his feet. He's not there yet. They're working through this. They're still watching their friend die. We haven't been told yet that he's dead, so we believe in this part of the story. They're watching this all go downhill. They have their fears, their concerns, and all of that. And yet Jesus is acknowledging, you want to know when evil strikes the most? It's in the places, in the darker places. You want to know when, when evil has its chance to make you stumble? I told you a second ago that when you're walking through the difficult segments of life, and maybe in those places where you're waiting on God, that you're, that you're in a place of struggling, that it is one of the places where God can reveal himself to you in ways that he couldn't in anywhere else, and how beautiful those places are. I need to also warn you that it is in the places of darkness that you are the most likely, the easiest, the, that you should expect evil to be lurking around trying to cause you to stumble because it's in those places of stress, it's in those places of tension that both God has the chance to show you something amazing and you are weakened. Look back for just a moment. When does evil tempt Jesus? Remember the story? When Jesus is out in the wilderness, what does evil wait to happen? He's been fasting for 40 days. He's malnourished. You know what I mean? Like he's hungry. Folks, I know evil will inhabit you when you get hungry. Amen? Yeah. We created a term for it. Hangry. It's how Snickers sells their candy bars for crying out loud. Like we know this you know? But in a very real way, it's when a person walks at night in that darkness that they stumble. Be, be aware that as you walk through and traverse those difficult places, it is both opportunity for God to do something amazing in your life while also opportunity where evil may be able to, to get a hold that it otherwise could not. Going to the next part of the story, in verses 14 through 16, you read something that theologians have, have talked about in the past. They've, they've kind of worked through and it's this phrasing. I, I know we're, we're jumping completely from those places that we were and we're, we're jumping into this other kind of segment of this story where, where Thomas, also called Didymus, makes this statement. Look back in the Bible with me. He makes a very bold statement about going back to Judea. What is Thomas's bold statement? Let us what? Yeah. I've heard some people talk about dying with him in reference to Lazarus, okay? And, and I don't know, I don't subscribe to that way of thinking. I, I, I read this story and they recognize if we go back to Judea, I mean, look back at this story. If we go back to, what were they trying to do to Jesus last time he was there? Stone him. You don't know, they're going to try to kill him. And, and he's like, if you go back here, you're going to die. And, and there's this, you'll talk about tension here. The disciples following Jesus, being a part of him, being associated with him, they recognize Lazarus is dying and we need to go. But if we go, those people are trying to kill us. Like notice and, and feel the fullness of tension here. You don't read in this story whatsoever. So like, this is me. This is purely Pastor Daniel. I want to make sure that you understand. This is what I'm about to say is my supposition. It's not represented here in the text. I wonder sometimes, was there thoughts about this when they're saying, Jesus, do not go here? I wonder in their minds if there was discussion about whether or not we go with him. Because if he goes back, he's going to die. If he goes back to that place, they're going to kill him. I think it's important to note that someone feels the need to speak up to the disciples, saying that like, if he goes, 
then we go to die with Him. I think that speaks to like, there was a bit of questioning. Maybe not out loud, maybe not them, but they're working through how are they going to respond to this. And ultimately, Thomas is the one who speaks up and goes, if he's going, then we absolutely will go back and die with him. Have any of you ever been invited on, on, a, on, a, on a trip or on something that was a little bit sketchy? Do you have friends who do sketchy stuff? And I mean like sketchy from the farm, like, you know, I don't know how this is going to work. I, I love the, uh, the, the kind of the, the imagery of this where someone comes up, I even saw this printed on a t-shirt one time, and it said, that's a horrible idea. When do we leave? You know what I mean? Like some people are, are gravitated toward like those, those things of like pushing the limits and trying new things. I can remember as a child, I am one of these people, I have to admit this in front of all of you. As a child, when I say child, about a 14, 15 year old, I remember asking my mom in the middle of summer, mom, me and my brother want to fish the Locust Fork River. Will you take us to the river and drop us off at a bridge known as, um, uh, as the, the Shoal Creek Bridge, all right? Will you drop us off there? We've looked at a map and that same river goes to Blaylock Bridge, which is behind our house back here. So if you'll drop us off in the morning on a Saturday morning and then pick us up at dark at Blaylock, that's what we're going to do. And mom said, how many miles is it? You know what my answer was? Several. How long is it going to take you? A while. I had no clue. We'd never floated that stretch of river before in our lives. But you want to know what? A 15-ish and a 13-year-old-ish teenage boy stuck in your house all summer long. Moms, do you get to a place where you're like, fine, we'll figure out how long it takes. I'm dropping them off at the river. You know, like, I'm done with these boys being in my house. It's time to drop them off. And so I remember talking my mom into driving my dad's truck down to the river we went, got the canoe out of the back, me and my brother and some snacks, okay? And we take off down the river having no idea. Can I tell you, this is, this is a, a part of the story that's a whole lot of fun. We fished for a while. And then we, we didn't know anything about the river between there. We only knew one friend had some property and we'd been to that property before. We fished for a while and it was sometime after lunch that we finally made it to that place. And so we ate our lunch on that rock. We got back in the canoe and continued to fish. But as the sun started setting and things started getting a little bit lower, we started re recognizing we still have no idea how far it is to the bridge. I mean, no clue. You all know rivers don't do this, right? Rivers do this stuff all over the place. And so here we're on the Lokes Fork River. I can remember when the sun went down far enough that you were seeing shadows on the other side up in the trees, me and my brother recognizing like, this is bad. Like, we need to stop fishing. We got to paddle, you know? And as we began paddling down the river, I can remember thinking to myself like, I've never canoed in the dark, but that's where we're headed. Like, we're already preparing ourselves mentally for this. And the relief of as the sun was setting, coming around a bend and seeing a bridge down the river, 15 and 13 year old boys, we made it. We, we did it, you know? Sure enough, we get there. Mom's there waiting on us. We get loaded up. Everything went well, but I'm going to tell you what, for a while, we had no idea how that was going to go. In my high school years, my brother was the one that I probably would have considered, you may be familiar with this phrase as well, my ride or die. You know what that means? It doesn't mean what it used to mean, by the way. In the 1950s, when that phrase came about, it's from a background of, of, uh, of motorcycle riders, of bikers. And it was a mentality that began, the statement and the phrase began as, I will either ride my motorcycle or I will die. That's who I am. Like that, That's where it began. And, and over time, we've transitioned that statement to be a thing of, no, no, this is the person that whether we ride together or die together, we do everything together. We kind of change the way we've, we view the phrase ride or die to where like we stick together. And Thomas is exemplifying in this story, I don't care what happens to Jesus, I'll be with him in the middle of it. What, what a place of resolve. What a place of a statement in the midst of all this that's going on. If you go back there, you're probably going to die. And Thomas looks around and goes, if he's going, I'm going, we'll die with him. Like what, what a moment, you know? 
the Bible is full of these great like one lines. If you were to write these into a screenplay, like what a moment when, when, when Thomas looks around at the other guys and you know the weight is on them about what's going to happen and where they're going. And he looks back over and goes, you know what? If he's going, let's all go. We'll die together if that's how this goes down. But I'm, I'm sticking with him no matter what. What a, what a beautiful statement that even in the midst of, let's circle this back again, in the midst of the uncertainties and the chaos of life, in the midst of people who are going through chaotic times waiting to know how God handles the story, in the midst of the waiting and in the midst of the concerns over things going very, very poorly, Thomas is still in that place of, if he's going, I'm going. That, that speaks to me at a deep level. It challenges me at a deep level of, <clears throat> of being committed with Jesus that it doesn't matter what happens. Good times, bad times, let's go with him. The last part of the story for me is one still circling around people in a place of chaos, a place of unknowns, all those sorts of things as they navigate through. Uh, you need to picture within this as well, there's some interesting kind of burial customs that are going on. I think it's worth uh, mentioning in this. You read about uh, him being wrapped, and we read several times in the death of Jesus about them bringing spices and wrapping bodies with linens and all those sorts of things. I, I think it's interesting to look back and realize that when people died in these days, there was a lot more. I want to be careful in calling it pageantry, but it really was pageantry that would take place. There was a formal week of mourning. You know, we don't do that very much in these days. There was a formal week of mourning where people would not bathe. <clears throat> they would not anoint themselves with perfumes or oils. Uh, they would sit in sackcloth and ashes, literally or proverbially, for a week. Uh, and then they went into the lighter week of mourning. I mean, there was a long process. On the way to, the, uh, to, to being buried uh, in the Jewish faith, there were a lot of people that, that subscribed to this. I find it fascinating uh, that they would do this. But they would travel with the women up front. It's interesting to me that they would do so associating that it was Eve in the garden who then invited Adam into tasting, therefore letting death and evil into this world in a much greater way that they, in some ways, were the ushering in both sides. That's fascinating to me. I'm not here to throw gender rocks and just gender stones or anything. I'm just saying it's a fascinating way that they worked through how those things worked. Uh, the things that they would wrap people in and the way they would go about that was very extravagant, uh, very detailed, very expensive, those sorts of things. There's a gentleman who, by the way, broke that uh, trend. His name's Gamaliel. You read about him in Acts 5. You know, in Acts 22, he's a guy who taught Paul a lot. He was a Pharisee. When Gamaliel died, he started breaking those trends by telling people, I want to be buried in common clothes. You know, like, I don't want to participate in the foolishness that has been happening in the past. And so when you read this story, you're watching as, as they're going through what is normal for them. And one of the other things that's normal for them, by the way, is that when you wrap the body, it wasn't just, I'm not trying to be grotesque here, but it wasn't just lay your deceased loved one in a large towel or sheet of some sort and cover them up and then carry them away to the grave. Like, it was wrapping with different types of linens. Did you notice at the end of this story when Jesus is, is looking at, at, at Lazarus? Matter of fact, it is a place where he screams into the tomb after the stone has been rolled away and it's been opened up. He says in verse 44, I know it's way on down the story, but he says something very in, in fascinating and a very good point. Take the grave clothes off of him. That's not a statement of fashion, you all. It's not a statement of, of so that he looks better. The way that he had been wrapped, he had been wrapped so tightly. If Lazarus was brought back to life in his current state, he would have died again within two or three minutes because he would have suffocated. Interesting. Interesting that allow your mind to, to wander here for just a moment. Jesus is telling them, be sure and get that which represents death off of him because if you do not remove it, it will kill him again. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the helmet of salvation? I made that joke about how some of us got saved. We put our helmet on and we are spiritual streakers just running about with no other parts of the armor of God. If you weren't here, it was a lot of fun. Go back and listen to it on the radio or wherever else. Like It's a beautiful and a, not a beautiful picture. It's a funny picture. Let's call it that. 
A lot of that's not beautiful. So it's a funny but to think about just wearing the helmet of salvation and moving on. And this goes back to speak to that and saying, Jesus may have brought you back to life. He may have brought life back into you. But if you do not remind, remove those bindings of death and those things that represent death, you will die again in a very short time. Like there is this, you need to remove that which is of death off of that person. Like what a, what a picture that is being painted. I told you all this morning, the reality is if we wanted to take this chapter, we could spend weeks and weeks here. But one of the things that I want us to do this morning is for our, our brief time together is look back at this story and recognize that whether you are going through chaotic times right now or not, because you will, this speaks very, very well to us in a place of let's trust. Let's know what it means to tarry for days sometimes. Let's know what it means to trust God even when things aren't lining up and making sense. And then when things are chaotic, it is not a time to waffle and ask questions about are we going to continue to follow? It's a time to double down as Thomas did. I'm, I'm following this man all the way to the end. And then in recognizing that it is, that it is in doing that, it is there, there's beauty in following God through those difficult times. This morning, I, I feel a, a, a bit guilty that we have had so many like parts of the story that are there, but my, my expectation is the Holy Spirit has already been doing what the Holy Spirit does in sharpening and guiding and pointing and poking and prodding in your world. God, we come before you this morning thanking you for a story that we would do well to read numerous times. God, that we would do well to read and be reminded of the, of the immense truth taking place within this. And so this morning, as we've had just 30 minutes or so to look back. God, would you challenge us especially in how to go and deal with the troubling and the chaotic times in life? But God, also as you as you bring us through and as you continue to grow us in life, remind us that we must remove the trappings of death in order to continue. Oh, we love you this morning. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.